Hello, and welcome to the Joint State Policy Podcast. I'm Susan Elder, and on this podcast, we discuss topics of interest in the Pennsylvania public policy arena, and specifically topics that we have published reports about. Today's podcast focuses on House Resolution 625, which was introduced by Representative Paul Schemmel. Today, we're here with Glenn Pasowitz, our executive director here at Joint State. Hello, Susan. And also Brian DeWalt, who is our sound engineer. And on this specific podcast, Brian is also the project manager. Hi, Susan. Before we go any further, I'm going to hand this over to Glenn to give us an introduction on this topic. Thanks, Susan. Uh, The report for uh, House Resolution 625 continues a theme in our work that has emerged over the past several years, that is to address the growing shortage of healthcare professionals working in Pennsylvania across a broad range of types of care. And we've done reports on every bedside nurses, mental health professionals, physicians, and such. Well, in 2015, we released an advisory committee report that looked at the physician shortage in Pennsylvania. And this time around, the focus was on the medical students and how the state's medical schools are encouraging them to follow a career path into primary care. As Brian will discuss, the nine medical schools are very much aware of the need for more primary care doctors and are indeed taking steps to do what they can to increase their numbers. And at the end, the report includes recommendations on what the state can do to help these efforts. Thanks, Glenn. Brian, this report seems like it was very data intensive. Can you give us a bit of a description of how you gathered data, what your data gathering process was for this project? For a lot of the information, we had to go directly to the medical schools. So we designed a questionnaire that was restating a lot of the data points that the resolution wanted, such as demographic data and program information. And we sent that questionnaire to each of the nine medical schools. We met with them over teleconferencing software and discussed their programs with them. And we were pretty pleased with the response. We were able to get eight of the nine medical schools to answer. And then we just kind of filled in what gaps with publicly available information. So given that there's this shortage, are the medical schools aware? Do they track when people tend to not choose primary care or drop out of primary care as a career track? One of the interesting things is that most of the schools aren't even aware when they leave primary care. All of the medical schools report on students who've matched into residency programs across the country. They will look at all the residencies that might be pediatrics, internal medicine, and family medicine, and any combination of those residencies, and they'll typically say, this is primary care. But unfortunately, that just sort of forms the maximum number that could go into primary care. There's plenty of reasons why they might, over time, continue to specialize to the point where they're not offering the full range of services. So they might start out as an internist and get in the first year of the residency and say, I don't like this very much, I'm switching. Or they might go through that internal medicine residency and then decide, I'm going to take more training. I'm going to become a cardiologist. And then even though they're trained for the full spectrum of services, they they might just offer only cardiology. So that makes it kind of hard to collect from a data standpoint. 
How do medical schools keep track of what their graduates are doing, Brian? The way schools are trying to keep track of graduates is some of them use that AMA, American Medical Association databases that they subscribe to, or sometimes their alumni offices keep records of what they're doing post-grads, often for fundraising purposes, but it, it could be other reasons too. And Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson has a longitudinal data study that they started back in 1970, and they track all of their graduates, and they were kind of a one-in-a-kind program in the country, and that was able to entirely track everything their graduates have done. That actually leads me to a question that I was not aware of this, you know, when we first started working on this report is what is primary care? I don't know if you could get into sort of give a, def- a quick definition as to what is primary care. I assumed primary care was the family doctor that you go to, but I think there's more to it than that. Regardless of their specialty, a primary care provider is doctor who will provide preventative care and teach healthy lifestyle choices identify and treat common conditions, assess urgency of medical problems, and make referrals to medical specialists when necessary. A primary care provider is someone you don't need a referral to see. But it's generally those big three that you mentioned, right? Family care, internal medicine, and pediatrics. For the purposes of our questionnaire, we based our definition of primary care off of the Pennsylvania Primary Care Loan Repayment Program, which includes the following specialties, family medicine, general internal medicine, general pediatrics, geriatrics, obstetrics, and gynecology. Kind of an interesting conversation because I didn't really think there was that much debate over what is included. Well, and also a question of how how did the institutions fill out the survey that you passed along to them? So for the questionnaire, I tried to ask them for as much as they could give me in terms of their, their specialties. During the report, how we break it out is mostly looking at those four specialties. We include primary care match is what we call it in the report. So those. What's the fourth, Brian? Combined internal medicine and pediatrics, also known as med-peds, are qualified to become someone's doctor for their entire life. Oh, okay. Okay. Now I'm on board. I'm with you. We compared the most commonly used primary care specialties with uh, a newer way of counting by a doctor in Colorado, Mark Deutschman, and he had a way of counting specialties that tried to get at who's intending to become a primary care physician. So he was included his own range of specialties that just said, these people, primarily family medicine specialties, just want to go into primary care, while the others very well just might continue to specialize. The report states that residencies in the U.S. are funded by Medicaid, which I thought was interesting, actually. Is it known how many are in primary care in Pennsylvania? So I looked this up. And I think there's around 1,200 residency positions in the state that could be considered primary care, uh, just kind of based on that big four definition we were talking about earlier. This number is kind of important because people who complete their residency 
in the area have a greater likelihood of just putting down roots and staying there. So the more Pennsylvania residencies that are primary care, the greater chance we have of increasing our number of primary care doctors. National data has estimated that 40% of Pennsylvania physicians stay in-state after their residency, and that's on the lower side compared to many other states who might have up to 60. So that, that suggests Pennsylvania could do a better job at retaining its physicians that train here. Well, then it seems like a simple solution would be to just increase funding uh, for primary care residencies, you know, and have, have more of them and, and maybe in the end have more stay. But apparently that isn't the case from, from the report. My understanding is that the funding system isn't really designed to break out primary care residencies or differentiate them from any other type. And the federal funding levels for graduate medical education was frozen since 1997 until December of last year. So that's 25-year freeze in supply. Meanwhile, we're having an aging population, doctors retiring, physicians who are burning out from the field. And this is contributing to just this massive shortfall between 37 and 124,000 physicians. That's the amount that we're expected to need by 2034. And that's a huge range. But still, it just shows that there is a, a very big shortage, and we're not entirely sure how many physicians will need to fill this gap. I looked, and there was some programs at the federal level, such as the in the Health Resources and Services Administration, there was a primary care training and enhancement program that in 2020 awarded about a million dollars of funds to develop primary care programs in Geisinger Clinic in Danville and St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem to help them develop more primary care residencies. I guess one of the other reasons why it's not as so simple as just increasing the primary care residency funding is there's also reforms needed within these residencies that's quality over quantity and that what people do in these residencies matter. So how much time they're getting with the patients, how much support they're getting from their mentors, the variety of their outpatient experiences will determine who sticks in primary care. So do we know why people don't, why people don't go into primary care or why they leave primary care? In the report, there is a whole list of characteristics that help determine residency choice. A lot of it is work-life balance might increasingly people are looking to specialize in something that might give them greater flexibility in their schedules, maybe make a lot more money since primary care physicians are at the lower end of the spectrum for when compared to some of those specialties, which are can be paid quite a bit more. But a lot of the people who are getting into primary care aren't doing it to become rich. It's just something they're, they're passionate about, but they would also want to make sure that they're getting the, the support they need and they feel like they know how to do their job. I, I noticed uh, in the report, uh, there's a discussion about Rhode Island having a model uh, to increase primary care doctors. Is there something that can be drawn from that and, and used in Pennsylvania? The report goes into how in 2004, Rhode Island General Assembly passed a health care reform package. And part of this legislation was kind of a study just to see what states had the highest performing health care systems and how much they cost. And at the time, Rhode Island spent about 6% of its health care budget, total health care budget on primary care. Review of the high performing states found that 
between 7 and 14% their medical budgets on primary care. So through this study, they developed a set of affordability standards. And Rhode Island responded by investing in its primary care infrastructure, adopting patient-centered medical home treatment models that help increase the coordination of services. And they started to move away from a fee-for-service payment model, which doesn't prioritize primary care spending. So they set all these goals for health plans to spend 1% more on primary care each year for five years between 2010 and 2014. And they required that insurers didn't just pass this increase in primary care spending to the premiums. So they made sure that no one was paying any more for this. And what they they found over time that as they spent more in primary care, they, they started to save a lot more in total spending, dropping as people were kept healthier and staying out of intensive care. And so meanwhile, with, with Pennsylvania, there's a 2019 report that, that looked at 26 states and found that Pennsylvania spends about 4% of its total healthcare budget on primary care spending, primary care spending physicians specifically. All right. Um, this might be a question that I don't know if you'll be able to answer this now because it just, it just popped into my head. But sure. So what is the primary care spending spent on? Like where, where does that state money go? What's it used for when they spend it on primary care? What do they do? I mean, where, where does it end up? I think for some of this, it wasn't just state money. They were they were saying the health plans themselves, you're, you're going to prioritize primary care. So I, I think it was not just state money, but pretty much all, all insurers are going to are going to do this and they're going to do it in such a way that it's not going to make costs balloon for the people getting these services. So is there does there seem to be a Pennsylvania medical school that is showing more success than the others in growing the, the number of primary care doctors? When we did the questionnaire and got responses back that there's a lot of different strategies for increasing primary care throughout the state. As we mentioned, there's nine medical schools, but the two of them are osteopathic schools, Philadelphia and then Lake Erie. College of Osteopathic Medicine were producing high numbers of primary care physicians. And part of this is just because it's a greater focus on their curriculums. And their, that approach to medicine tries to look at the whole person rather than just treating specific symptoms. So that philosophy was just well aligned with producing more primary care providers. Another thing we found was that more schools are moving towards uh, offering three-year accelerated programs for people who want to, to get through medical school a bit faster. So these people would spend three years in medical school and then three years in the residency normally help them to get into the workforce a little bit faster and cut out parts of the curriculum that might not focus on primary care as much and just ensure that their training is very curtailed to this purpose. In terms of more innovative programs, Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson was able to give us information on the Physician Shortage Area Program, which is aimed at recruiting students from rural areas in the state and helping them become doctors. And many of those go on to become primary care doctors. They have 24 slots a year for incoming classes 
And the program focuses on taking these students and kind of forming a cohort with them so they just can rely on each other and ensure they get the support they need and provide mentoring opportunities for these students. And what they found is that 21% of the state's family doctors come from this program. That's a crazy high number. That is really high number. And part of that is because recruitment, people don't just decide they want to become country doctors. You have to really seek out these people and encourage them to do so. That's kind of amazing. So they, they really said that just the intentionality of the program was one of the keys to success is that th- this was something they looked for in their admissions process, which is w- was uncommon. We, there wasn't too much else like this throughout the Commonwealth. And this has been a long-term program. This isn't something that's just been started in the last year or two. No, it, it is, it's been a long-term ongoing mm-hmm. program, and there, there's not really a whole lot else like it in the state. Okay. The other innovative approaches that we'd seen was uh, from the newest medical school, Geisinger Commonwealth, and they started a program called Abigail Geisinger Scholars Program, which aims to pay the tuition and stipends of certain medical students who agree to work for their health system five years after the residency. So they can go anywhere in the country and do the residency, but then they'll come back and a certain percentage of those students have to be primary care. But the program was currently too new to really have much in the way of results yet. When did the Geisinger Commonwealth Medical College actually start? I'm... I think it's about 10 years ago. Okay. So. Okay. I just was going to ask one more and say, Brian, do you, do you want to you know, go down through their findings and recommendations if you want me to list those off quickly? Yeah. In terms of recommendations, we were finding that really the state could be doing a lot more to collect data on the primary care workforce. Just try to keep a better track uh, at the state level. What is happening post-medical school? There's a blind spot right now. We have what they're doing in medical schools, but further careers, just a lot of the schools don't have this information. So we're going to need to look elsewhere. Another finding was that Pennsylvania medical schools don't really have much of an incentive to encourage careers in primary care. They don't really get anything out of it if they create more primary care students. It's driven by things like student choice. What we recommended there is that we we kind of need to dispel a bit of the negative perception of primary care that exists within some of these institutions and encourage the schools that have good programs like PSAP potentially through state investment or just trying to find ways to expand these programs. Another finding was to increase the Pennsylvania Primary Care Loan Repayment Program. Agree to work in an area that has need of a primary care doctor for two years, and in exchange, they give you $100,000 towards loan repayment. But what we found in previous reports is the surrounding states had better programs that required new doctors to stay in those areas longer and compensated them better. While we just found out that this year in November, that amount of the loan repayment program had dropped rather than increased. So we're we're probably going to push for that again. There's some programs that just try to target recruiting physicians. If we can't train more doctors, we, we need to just encourage more to come out to Pennsylvania and work in these rural areas or shortage areas in the meantime. And our final one is just to encourage more primary care pipeline programs. 
starting to generate interest in medical school, in careers and primary care at, at high school level, at, at college level, and just kind of raise an interest among those students, give them the tools they need to, to help get them to medical school. And that's our current findings. Thank you so much for highlighting the shortage of primary care physicians in Pennsylvania, Brian. You're welcome. If you're listening and you would like more information, either about joint state or this specific study, please check out our website. It's jsg.legis.state.pa.us. The music in our podcast is by Joseph McDade. Thanks for listening and have a good day.